This is the Cultural Fluency Podcast with Angèle Preto, the French coach, that's me. And today in episode seven, I am with Carla McLaren, an award-winning author, social science researcher, and empathy pioneer. She is the founder and CEO of Emotion Dynamics Inc. and the developer of the Empathy Academy. Carla, welcome. Thank you so, so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Angèle. It's so good to be here. I am so happy to have you. I have been reading and rereading your book, The Language of Emotions. The practice has helped me get unstuck countless times over several years. And I've also recommended your work to my students uh, in several of my workshops, actually, uh, as part of the French French Accelerator, which is my group program. And, you know, one could wonder what does the practice of emotion have to do with learning French? And the answer is everything, because emotions literally have everything to do with everything. Your work is absolutely all-encompassing. It's incredible. I'm dying to know how did you arrive at this work? What made you decide to pick such a colossal task? (laughs) No, seriously. (laughs) This book is not in French. It is in seven, eight languages, and it's not in French. What the heck? You need, yeah, maybe we can talk about how the French are. You need this book to be in French. Yes. So um, can only confirm. I chose, I, I say I chose the um, emotions, but they chose me. Um, it came about in a kind of a difficult way, which is that I experienced a great deal of um, childhood uh, trauma. And mm-hmm. in many cases, people who are traumatized have a lot of emotional volatility right. that that sense. So for me, emotions were not these controllable or understandable things. My experience was that they were just coming at me, you know, Mm -hmm. that it was just too much. And so I turned toward them pretty much to say, what are you here for? What is even, what are you? Why is this happening? And then getting into that relationship with the emotions began to understand what each one does and why it comes forward and what it's pro you know what the process is so it was really a kind of a life-saving idea for myself mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to figure emotions out and once I did then I started teaching other people and went oh this is useful for other people as well so that's where it started right that, that makes sense and then it evolved into a grand unified theory of emotions <laughs> yes. which is like what is that even and, and why do we need it? I think there were so many situations um, where I would look at in psychology and psychiatry and neurology and nobody had a definition of emotions. Mm-hmm. There wasn't one or sort of an overarching picture of what they were. Everybody was fighting about it. And so I thought, let me create like or organize what do all the emotions do how do they function how do they work together and so that's what I meant about grand unified it's like sort of what is that whole realm of emotions what is an emotion why does it appear what's its purpose and why are there so many of them (laughs) I see is that a question that you could answer for us in like a short amount of time right here or what is an emotion why do we have them why do we have them (laughs) Um, the sociologist Arlie Hochschild says she calls emotions a sense and our most important one. Mm-hmm. And emotions help us make sense of the world. They help us understand what just happened, how we feel about it, and what skills or um, gifts we have inside ourselves to, to deal with the thing. So emotions are sort of what make us living beings. And 
sadly, they've been shoved into the shadow mo in most mm -hmm. places. So in highly intellectual circles, the emotions are, oh my gosh, they're terrible. Right. In highly spiritual circle, the emotions are like, get those out of here, you know? And so the emotions have been in the shadow. And one of the things about the shadow for people who have done shadow work, which is a Jungian process to deal with hatred and adoration, is that mm -hmm. in the shadow is the gold. The shadow contains the power. So I thought, I'm going to go there. <laughs> I want to go where everybody says don't go. Right. And I want to go to the thing that everybody hates to see where the power is. And what I found is that emotions are, they aren't like the, intellect isn't up here and emotions are down here they're here mm -hmm. together and right. so emotions sort of yeah underlie everything we think every action we take every belief we have every choice we make emotions are there and if we don't understand emotions we won't understand ourselves we won't mm -hmm. know why we do half the things we do we'll just be you know we'll just be a mystery to ourselves right, right. yeah do you, do you feel that this issue is particularly a Western issue or have you also witnessed it in other cultures, perhaps in different ways? I have seen it in the cultures where, for instance, in Asian cultures, there is a difficulty with emotion as, and it's a different kind of difficulty than you see in mm -hmm. European or Western cultures, but there's still a problem with emotion that you don't want to show certain emotions or you want to put certain emotions on top of others for social you know harmony right and i think in cultures such as african tribal cultures i know a couple of african tribal cultures emotions are more accepted although they may not have the same terminology we do sort mm -hmm. of of course you feel upset that would be normal instead of here we would say don't get upset you know right. start start meditating um yeah so it's i think the closer people are to nature mm -hmm. maybe the closer they are to understanding that emotions are natural that's just right. a giant oversimplification <laughs> uh, we gotta start somewhere so i mean <laughs> let's start here that's 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 fine okay. I mean, you have a number of uh I don't, I don't like the word controversial, but uh, in your work, uh, you do tend to rehabilitate some emotions that have been really pushed down because, like as you say, we do push most emotions down, but some more than others. Yeah. Um, anger, particularly bad for women, for men is kind of okay. Shame, bad for everybody. Yeah. Uh, and, unless we want to shame someone for like our own purpose, and then that is apparently socially accepted. That's great. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you said those emotions have actually a use, a use case, and we have to yeah. embrace them. Yeah, and another thing, an emotion that men are shamed out of or not allowed to have is sadness and grief. Mm -hmm. So men aren't allowed to cry, which does terrible yes. things to male bodies. And um, women aren't allowed to have anger, which does terrible things to women's lives, right? right. Um, so each of these emotions has a very specific purpose. And I've begun to look at what is the overarching message that is being given to us if we are denied a fundamental aspect of our own cognition? For women, anger sets boundaries. And so for many women, 
if you don't have women who can set boundaries, then you can sort of push them around. Right. Yes, right? absolutely. And you can also continue to look at them as weak because mm -hmm. they can't speak up. And for men with sadness and grief, sadness helps you let go of things that aren't working anyway. Grief helps you uh, mourn death and, and you know right. tremendous loss. And if men can't let go and men can't mourn, then we create a kind of a violence mm -hmm. in men so that we can tell each other, oh, men are violent. So right. women are weak and men are violent. Instead of look at what happened to people who aren't allowed to access their own human emotions, right? And with shame, which is a beautiful emotion that we've been taught to just despise and hate. Mm -hmm. Shame. And be ashamed of. As the yeah, kids, to be ashamed of my shame. Or ashamed of being ashamed. It turns the circle, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know where I'm going anymore. I'm ashamed of shame. Um, yeah. I'm afraid of fear. I'm angry about anger. I'm sad about sadness. Mm -hmm. Like, okay. It um, might never end. Yeah, it doesn't. And I call this like an emotion pileup, like a pileup of cars on the freeway. Right. Like I feel shame and it has a purpose, but now I feel shame about shame. Now I feel afraid because I'm ashamed. Now I'm angry that I'm ashamed. Now I'm like, stop it. Let's, let's move the pile up and just focus with this one emotion. So shame's job is to help us live up to the values and morals and ethics we've agreed to. Mm -hmm. And if our values and morals and ethics are livable and healthy, then our shame, we might not even feel it as such. Say, say one of our values right. is I want to floss my teeth at night and you floss your teeth, boom. And if you don't floss your teeth, your shame will be like, once you get into bed, did you floss? You're like, dang it. And then you get up, right? That's mm -hmm. your experience of shame. Yes. But what if your shame has somehow picked up the idea that no one will love you until you're perfect? Yeah, I, I think a lot of people have that, right? <laughs> yeah. And so some poor soul comes to love you and you're not perfect. So your shame goes on a bender and it mm -hmm. comes at you constantly. You can't be loved. You can't be loved. You can't be loved. So what a lot of people do is they look at this kind of, you know, their shame as shame is a bad emotion instead of look at this unlivable idea that shame is trying right. to uphold in you that you can never be loved until you're perfect, which of course is unlivable and impossible. So in a way you set your shame up to be a jerk, <laughs> to be a yes. continual awful jerk. And it's not shame's fault because mm -hmm. it's just holding you to the agreements that you made. So the work with shame is to figure out what agreements you made. Right. And often you made them very, very early and you don't remember. Or, or you were forced to make them. Yeah. Yeah. You have no idea, but you know that you just feel, you know, gruesome mm -hmm. and grotesque yes. when you try to do thing one, two, or three, and you're just filled with uh, a pa painful shame that you cannot manage. And it's a lot of people turn toward the shame and go, that's a terrible emotion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm super. I'm assuming in your work, you work with a lot of people who are in that situation. How do you start working with someone who's, you know, feeling that, feeling ashamed and feeling that they shouldn't, that it is a gruesome emotion? How do you even get started with that? Like helping someone out? Yeah, we listen to the shame and we've actually got, we've made it pretty, we've got a, like a shame flow chart. So, mm -hmm. you know, you feel the shame and is this something you've agreed 
is a valuable thing. Yes. All right. So listen to the shame, make your amends. Don't do the thing again. And the shame should relieve itself. Right. Is this a thing that is not livable? Yes. Then we need to renegotiate that thing. So we actually do something called burning contracts or renegotiating contracts where the contracts may be no one will love you until you're perfect and just write it down or imagine it and move it out of yourself. And if it's, you know, and, and burn the contract or throw it away or close it. And the reason I use imaginal practices like this is because emotions can speak whatever language you speak or whatever languages mm -hmm. you speak, but they have a deeper language, which is of imagery, right? Nice. It's, it's the, the language of poetry and art and image and dance. So anything that we can do while we're showing our emotions, I'm trying to get rid of this terrible contract. Mm -hmm. If we do it in an imaginal way, the emotions are like, got that. And so the next right. time you go toward love and these shaming message come up, there's, there'll be something in you that says, hold on, is that true? Mm -hmm. Right? So it's not cognitive or some intellectual process entirely right. because we didn't pick up these terrible contracts intellectually yes. we didn't go no one will love you till you're perfect that's a great idea i'm going to do that right mm -hmm. we yeah, picked it's it up beyond the language like it wasn't actually yes. worth it right so it's yeah it's like we... a cultural yeah. upload or something that mm -hmm. we were never really sure we did it or Yes. We didn't have agency or choice at the time. So it's a way to return agency and choice to you and your shame. Do you use a lot of uh, meditation or like halted uh, states of consciousness to do this work? Because it feels to me that it should, would be easier if you have lower brain waves rather than being yeah, we, up in your head all the time. Yeah, we do a lot of moving into the body and mm -hmm. just settling, right. grounding, um, getting a sense of peace and quiet uh, we have practices called comfort body where you just so lots of somatic lots of connecting with your body because a lot of times if you're very intellectual you can fool yourself as oh, yes as you know you can fool yourself really easily <laughs> but your body will say mm, nope and your emotions will say i don't think that's true right. and if you don't have any connection with your emotions or your body you can create a kind of a schism mm -hmm. right a kind of a here's your intellect telling you what's true and your body and your emotions are like, that's not true. And instead of being able to access body and emotions, you mostly just look down on them and like, well, you're just terrible. <laughs> you know, your intellect right. just shut up. And so what we try to do is get the intellect and the body and the emotions to get more connected with each other mm -hmm. so that the intellect isn't the, the bully that it can be in right. highly intellectual cultures so you can be more integrated and work more yeah. with not just your intellect but your whole person yeah right yeah and then you hopefully be less ashamed of everything i guess <laughs> hopefully <laughs> or ashamed appropriately if you're Appropriate, doing something you shouldn't yes, do you're yeah. actually doing something wrong yeah yeah i mean I, yeah I, I did i don't know if you subscribe to this idea i heard that um guilt is being uh, guilty or ashamed of what you've done versus mm -hmm. shame is being guilty or ashamed of what you are, of who you are. Yes. Would you and make a this lot distinction? People, I don't because I see them as the same emotion. Uh -huh. If 
I feel what they call guilt. It's guilt about something I did. It's shame about something I did. If I feel shame about what I am, it's shame about what I am. And I think a lot of people say that the shame about what I am is not survivable. And if I have you been in the planet Earth? Lots of people do survive with it. Not (laughs) well, but they do. But I mean, this is the work of human evolution. This is the work of you know, the great epics. Mm -hmm. This is the great drama of realizing that you have become something that you cannot be proud of, right? That That you have become a kind of a monster. So how do you return to life? And that's what, you know, one of the, like the sacred work of shame is to hold you accountable when you have gone so far out on a limb of just not, like it's not okay what you're doing it's Mm -hmm. not okay what you're being and I saw this most powerfully I taught um I'm a singer I taught acapella uh, Mm -hmm. harmony singing in prisons and I went there to my idea was very white middle class lady idea (laughs) I just like I'm gonna go teach singing singing in prison why not Why not? No, but what I find with singing acapella harmony is that it helps people create a community of Mm -hmm. the voice and that these men were being forced to live together in a way that was very unhealthy and uncomfortable for them. I thought, Mm -hmm. let's bring some joy into the fact that they are trapped together. And what I saw was these are people who were in for life here in the United States. You know, you have we have life sentences Mm -hmm. and they weren't getting out ever. And they didn't just do something bad, right? They didn't just sort of trip and murder someone. (laughs) It's like, whoops, I murdered you. (laughs) They had become murderers. They had become rapists. They had become, they were monsters. Mm -hmm. And they were there doing art, drumming, poetry, uh, drama, music, singing, to reclaim their souls and it was one of the most beautiful places i've ever been in my life and so that for me is a picture of what can what shame can do Mm -hmm. i see if you know how to hold it yeah wow that's a very very powerful picture it is it was a beautiful place i miss them it's like why can't we go to prison (laughs) be careful what you wish i (laughs) am i heard you might manifest it be <laughs> don't get anxious well, about singing it but... when i'm there i'll be like okay we're singing <laughs> we're trapped together we're singing uh, harmony <laughs> that, that could work I, I'm, I'm feeling a bit anxious about like the idea of even being trapped in prison even if i, I mean i can't sing so that might be that um, but one of your books is called embracing anxiety and uh that's anxiety is a topic i speak a lot about with my students because they feel very anxious, not all of them, of course, but some of them feel very anxious about speaking uh, French. And that's why I I tend to quote your work left and right because of that. Um, But uh, still embracing anxiety is kind of an unexpected proposition. I don't find that weird coming from you, but still like, how did you choose such a title? And and what does that mean to embrace anxiety? This was a suggestion from my publisher. They wanted to do a book on one emotion. And I was like, do we do shame, depression, or anxiety? And it was during the pandemic, the early days of the pandemic. So we thought anxiety, anxiety is the one. And to embrace it. Um, And it 
the reason for that is because people really don't understand anxiety at all. And I was very surprised by this because when I started asking people, talk to me about anxiety as I was researching the book, they all talked to me about the, the related but different emotion of panic. And panic, the difference between them is, all right, I'm going to start with fear. Fear is the emotion that comes up in the present moment to help you orient to whatever's going on and to mm -hmm. notice whether there's any change, novelty, or possible hazard. If right. there's a hazard, panic wants to come in because it's your life-saving emotion that helps you fight, mm -hmm. flee, and freeze. So fear is the present moment. Panic is about danger. Anxiety is about the future. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it helps you plan and scheme and prepare and get ready for all of your tasks and your projects and your deadlines. So it's got a lot of energy, right? right? Because you got to get stuff done. And because people don't understand these emotions very well, when that energy of anxiety comes up, sometimes people sort of move into panic. Mm -hmm. They, uh, we call it panxiety. It's panic plus anxiety. Right. We have to make up words in mm -hmm. English because English has a terrible emotional vocabulary for. Oh my God. You don't speak French, words. do you? No. It's worse. Does he, do you have a better one? No. It's worse? Oh, it's, it's worse. Yeah. It's, it's... Who's got the best one? German? I, I don't know. Um, for me, it's easier to speak about my emotions in English, but it's also because it's the language I've worked the most with. Okay. Uh, and I have a much harder time explaining my emotions in French. And sometimes I feel just that the vocabulary is simply not there or the words okay. mean something else than what I want to say. And I can't communicate it. And the we've other people have also not worked on it. So they, it, it's, it's bad. Yeah. We've had to create portmanteau words in English to talk about panic plus anger, panger, mm -hmm. you know, anger plus, um, anger plus panic, panger, anger plus, no, anxiety plus anxiety, panic, right, right. panxiety, um, happiness and anxiety, anxiapiness, you know, like we've just Was had to make up it's a, it's a thing now. <laughs> but it's, it, 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 it refers to a real situation, right? Yeah, it, fees, it refers so, to a real situation when like? those two emotions are coming together. Well, you have to be careful with anxiapiness because happiness thinks everything's cool. Mm -hmm. happiness thinks everything's great and you want to see that emotion come up when everything is great but when anxiety and happiness work together and you're not very grounded your anxiety your happiness will say your will say yeah we can take that project on yeah, of course all right i could take two more come on let's do it all right and then anxiety and happiness go on a little bit of a dance while the rest of you goes what I had plans, right? So anxiety and happiness can kind of be like kids uh, that get a little too excited so and is you it have to like, separate them. I'm not sure I get it. Like, is it that you're anxious about something else you have to do and then you you just have like an avoidance behavior by picking up more projects or? It may be. It may be. Why do you pick up so many projects and why do you believe that you could do that much work? Mm -hmm. I think we've all gotten into that place. We're like, sure, I'll take on that project. I've done that a lot. And you wake Started up in the, the middle of the night recently. going. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not that recent. I mean, it's episode seven. It's going well. I, I was correct. <laughs> I can pick it up. Um, so, oh, getting back to the fear, anxiety, panic is that anxiety, um, 
Anxiety should give you some energy. It should give you some forward focus. And one of the problems with anxiety is that your body doesn't live in the future. It lives in the present. So anxiety can kind of unbalance you as a function of its, of its work. So if you don't have regular grounding and if you don't have regular sort of body care and emotion care, that's a normal part of your life. Anxiety can sort of tip you forward and sort of throw you into a kind of a race, you know, gotta go, gotta run, gotta fly, gotta. Um, and as you're doing that, your panic may come forward because you're not exactly safe when you're running like this. Mm -hmm, of course. Right. So for many people, anxiety and panic are, they're like this, they're you can't get them apart. Right. And so the work with anxiety early on is to understand the difference between the two emotions. And the question would be, is there any physical danger to my actual life right now? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is no, you say, thank you, panic. Let me look at the anxiety, right? right? What needs to be done? Is there a deadline coming up? Am I prepared? Then, you know, and if you find your panic coming back, it could be you've got too many close deadlines. You've mm -hmm. got too many things to do. A, a normal human being couldn't do what you have planned. Right. So you're in a kind of danger there, right? I mm -hmm. mean, if, if you think of your, the social danger you might be in, if you agreed to do something and you blow your deadline, people are not going to respect you. Right. Cool. So your panic may come up and say, there's some social danger here. So it's mm -hmm. working with anxiety is kind of an emotional masterclass <laughs> because, um, because it has so much energy and does so much for you. Basically, it's your motivation. Anxiety right. is your motivation. And we can be motivated in loving and relaxed ways, or we can be motivated with a fire underneath us. Mm -hmm. And so there's that whole, and also shame gets in there. We call it shmanxiety. Yeah, I think I can relate to that, shmanxiety. Yeah. <laughs> shmanxiety is, um, if it's working beautifully, shame plus anxiety will help you go, are you not just doing your work, but are you doing the best work? Are you doing the most grounded and mm -hmm. uh, work with integrity? And does this work have meaning, right? That's when shame and anxiety are working well together. If they're not, and you've got some yucky shaming messages from school or something, it's like, why aren't you done? Why can't you finish anything on time? You're just lose. You're a loser, right? That's when shame and anxiety are kind of right. fighting. Yeah. Because you've got all that training. Yeah, that's bad. Needs you, a burning contract session. I see. Would you consider fear and anxiety to be the same emotion? Or, I mean, you said fear helps you navigate the present, but like, yes. I think for a lot of people, it's kind of intertwined. Yes. Yeah. Fear and anxiety. Fear and, anxiety. and we call it fear anxiety. Right. right. Fear anxiety. <laughs> and you can call it, of course, anything you want because these are just made up words. But um, fear is about the present moment and anxiety is about the future. But in many cases, you need both. Right. Because you need to be aware of what you're doing and that everything is ready so that in the future you arrive prepared. And so both they can be together, but both are fairly energetic emotions. Mm -hmm. And if you have 
kind of mistaken energy for being overwhelmed then panic may come in and go well, what's wrong is right. is your life in danger and then you're like come on no <laughs> i mean panic means well panic mm -hmm. always means well but it's all a lot of energy mean well right they all do none of them mean bad yeah right? nobody mm -hmm. wants to nobody wants to hurt you but if you've got fear anxiety and panic at the same time that's like a an overwhelming amount of of energy if you don't know how to work with it and is there so also, you just might feel overwhelmed. Is there also a combination with shame in the mix, like fear, anxiety, and shame? Yeah. Because I, I think I have a case like that right now. I, think I, have, a case. I, have, I have a thing. No, I mean, I realized that recently, a relatively common, I'm working on this, so I think it's going away, but a relatively common emotion for me is that I'm afraid of feeling like a failure in the future. Yes. And if yes. I actually genuinely fail, and because I noticed that I was like, oh, that's that the state comes up frequently for me yeah. and but if the thing i'm afraid of like if i actually fail because i mean that happens sometimes like sometimes something goes wrong like i i started learning uh, cryptocurrency trading not every trade will go right it's impossible <laughs> and so i'm afraid if they go wrong i'll feel like a failure um but then i i realize that when it does happen or you know if i feel at putting out a project that like the deadline that i set for myself or, or whatever i look at it i'm like oh okay this didn't this didn't work how do i fix it I don't have time to feel like a failure or feel ashamed at that moment because I have something to do. Yeah. But prior to that, I have this really weird feeling where I've just like done on myself preemptively for something that might happen, but if it happens, it's not a big deal. Yeah. It's so weird. Yeah. But it's not, there's frequent? some kind of messaging in there, right? Yeah. There's some kind of messaging in there about failure. And I don't think most of us have gotten very good messaging about failure no because no, it is so crucial for learning failure is so important but i don't think i ever heard that in school yeah uh, it's something i work with my students on a, a lot because uh, they're afraid of making mistakes yes and the problem is that with me being a french coach um, most of the time i work with like a, a curriculum that I make for each student and that is that curriculum is being made as we go. It's yes. like sort of a, a skill of just coming up with what to do next. Yes. The only way that I can come up with what to do next is if they make mistakes. Yes. <laughs> so we have a bit of a problem where they are afraid to do the very thing that I need them to do. Yes. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. I, I tell them to read your books. <laughs> <laughs> there is a beautiful um, learning model. It's a four stage learning model that might be helpful because it's got shame in it, but they don't say it that way. So uh -huh. it is the consciousness and competence model. You may know it. No, it's new to me. Tell me about it. If you don't know something, I'm going to go from left to right. If you don't know something, you are unconsciously incompetent. Oh, you don't yes. Know that you uh, don't the, know. the four stages yeah, the of four. competence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I actually and know that. so yes. that second stage where you are now consciously incompetent. Right you know that you're not good at it and it bothers you this mm -hmm. is the shame place right right and a lot of people they will not learn they they will stop here at the consciously yes. incompetent place and they it's work to get consciously competent right, right. There, but there's shame there which is you don't know what you're doing you are not an expert right you you have to practice 
And a lot of people just, they can't, they Mm -hmm. can't. And it's because of the, of the shaming message they probably got at school. You should know this, you should know this already or something Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Something I hear from my students a lot, like I should know this and like, yeah, you don't. So work on it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is the place that you don't know. And you know, when you're learning something new, that is such important information. The places where you missed it, there's something there, right? You know, like I used to tutor um, calculus, which mm-hmm. is a very step-by-step. Yes, it's like it's like a it's a recipe calculus, mm-hmm. and you have to get the recipe right. And watching where people would miss a step was so important because there was a mathematical process under there that they didn't quite understand. Right, and if they didn't understand that process, calculus was not going to work. Right? right, but you're like you said with um with language i need to see that mistake mm-hmm. so that we can we can smooth that out you need to know where where the thing was yeah going. yes but a lot of people were like i should know calculus like no you shouldn't calculus yes. is freaking no, hard no yeah it is Absolutely. yeah <laughs> are you familiar with the dunning-kruger effect yes which is yeah i am one day I just overlaid those two models together, the four stages of competence and the doing yes. career effect, because the people yes. who are unconsciously incompetent, they are the most confident yeah. uh, and the most annoying. <laughs> so, and that's the doing career effect. If you don't know, if, if you don't know anything, or if you know like two or three things about something and you're just like, you think you know everything, you're just basically unconsciously incompetent. <laughs> and then you like slide down that curve <laughs> when you realize that, oh shoot. Yeah, so I find that's really helpful for people to understand why they feel bad when they're at the, the low point. Yes, you know, the second stage, which is the low point of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yes, and it's it's work. It's work to it learn is. something new. Yeah. And uh, it, I we think, call that a learning curve, right? For a reason. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and there, here's the not learning, and you know, here's the forgetting curve. Um, I remember there was some research done on uh, people who were learning to read as adults. Uh, they had somehow missed that that stage and many of them reported that they needed to wear their sweaters and socks because as they were reading they would get cold i mean there was so much cognitive effort into reading after they rose the heat away from after they missed that period of reading you know where it would have Mm -hmm. been easier before the age of 12 or 13. i think it's the same with language right isn't there a isn't there a space where children sort of pick up language much more easily and then it kind of filters. I'm not sure about that. It it okay. seems to be some sort of like widely acknowledged truth. Yes. But I don't feel that I actually witness it. Uh, what I do witness is that children are not actually afraid. Um, if you put okay. a bunch of children who speak different languages in a sandbox, uh, they, they will naturally pick up the language of each other a bit because they want to communicate and they just yeah. go for it. They do it. They don't have the... Uh, inhibition that adults have okay if you put a bunch of adults uh, that speak different language in a room uh, nothing will happen probably (laughs) if if you try to give them a mission maybe like you know you tell you frame it as an experiment or something but you would have to communicate a lot to them like this is what you have to do and kids are just like no like oh other kids let's play i think that's okay well i like that better than reason i like that better than because i've you know, I've wanted to learn languages and I was like, no, I'm past that. I'm past that stage. No, no, yeah. definitely, definitely not. I mean, when you think about it, how long did it take you to learn English? 
if you're an I'm English still native. learning it. <laughs> right, but at, at, at what age were you roughly fluent? Four, three or four. Yeah. Three or four? Oh, that, that's young. I mean, at what, at what age were you fluent with reading and writing? Reading about four. We were very early readers in my family. Okay. And yeah, early yeah. writers. This is not average, not at all. No, no, no. <laughs> average person, I'd say they, they would master English with like the four competencies at like seven or maybe eight even. Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, not not earlier than six. At least not in France. In France, we do speak. We learn to read at six, so I don't. You know, it might be different from country to country. Okay. Um, but if you took if it took you from age zero to six, even from age zero to four, when you think about it, it's four yeah. years. Yeah. Imagine how if you would put all of your dedication into say French in four years, you would be very far with the language. I um, I propose that people can become fluent in one year with the kind of system that I use. Oh, wow. Uh, in one year from birth to one, you're not going to get fluent in your native language. Yeah. You know, so. <laughs> of course, it's harder if it's the first one. You have to like put all of your neural pathways. You have to train every single sound and everything. So you do use, and that's one reason why it's, I think, somehow easier for adults and for children is that you can use the language that you already have, some sort of universal grammar, and especially if it's English and French because 50% of English comes from French directly, you oh actually God. already have 50% of French vocabulary for free for being an English speaker. <laughs> but if you want to pick up French, it would be a lot easier than if you want to pick up, say, Chinese or Arabic, because those languages are way different. And they have much farther from English than French is. Yeah. Well, no, I like what you say. I have tried to learn languages and I lose my English. I have a number of learning disabilities. Yeah. Um, dysnomia and dysgraphia and dys, yeah. Dys Ooh, that doesn't help. Yeah, that makes it harder. That doesn't sure. help. So I end up losing my English. Do you have, do you have a sense when you're learning a new language, are you losing your French? Yes. Um, okay. It is uh, for me because now I do most of my work in English and I mm -hmm. speak a lot more English than French. Also, I live in Austria, which is a German speaking country. Yeah. Um, I actually have to force myself to read in French, listen to French and actually meet her French people to keep practicing. And there are a lot of topics, emotions being one of them, that I, like I was telling you, it's a lot easier for me to speak about those topics in English than in French, because I have just not practiced as much. And it's normal. Anyone who's bilingual will have um, differences in the topics that they can speak about and will have different levels of fluency, even if they are quote unquote perfectly bilingual. Um, and I have actually consciously made the decision. I'm, I'm a polyglot originally. I speak six languages, or at least I could speak six languages. But I have made the, made the conscious decision to only practice my English and my French and become very good at those two because that's what helps my work the most. And the others, you know, Spanish, German, Portuguese, and Esperanto, I can speak them if I have to. I can like train myself, but I've consciously decided to not work on them just because you can only do so much. I don't, don't know anyone who's an extreme master at six languages. I love that Esperanto is in there. <laughs> it's Props. a cool language. Props to Esperanto. It's easy to learn too. Actually, if you want to learn languages, you should learn Esperanto first because it will but be fast. But who do you speak Esperanto with? Anyone who speaks it. You can, <laughs> many... you can find people everywhere who speak it. Oh, really? So, well, I mean, it depends. Maybe not in like the darkest countryside where there are a few people. But uh, <laughs> if you live in a major city, there probably are Esperanto speakers, yes. Oh, I love that. I love that. I just love the whole story of Esperanto. It is just so hopeful and it and, is yeah yeah <laughs> it is it is it's it was the the idea of 
creating a language for people to communicate where like everyone could have their native language and their native culture and then they would have this as a bridge language like the proposition was never to replace the original culture uh, which yeah. is unfortunately what is kind of happening with uh, with english nowadays and it happens with every colonial language i mean french is just as guilty as english for that it's just that we are losing the battle lately against english <laughs> but yeah, like it's in a globalized world, we, we just tend to have a culture overpowering the other. And it's the Esperanto was a proposal against that. It just doesn't seem to be very, I don't know. Actually, I'd love to hear what you think about it. Like how, like, how do you feel that the globalized work is, is going? Like, you know, different cultures, different spiritualities, perhaps. Uh, do you think that emotion, like your work can help with that? I don't even know how to word the question. Do you see what I mean? Like the whole yes. different cultures, really globalized surprised. worlds, all that. It's yeah. yeah. The the book, the language of emotions, is in Turkish, Russian, Czech, Hungarian, Slovak, Chinese, oh, Italian, and languages. Japanese. And even two versions for Czech and Slovak. I know. Wow. I know. It's sort of like they're surrounding Poland, but it's not in Polish yet. Because <laughs> yeah. Russian, Czech, Hungarian, Slovak, um, and Turkish. And, and what's no been German. interesting, no German, no French, no Spanish. So weird. But Italian, that's close. <laughs> that's close. Yeah. Um, what I, I was always really fascinated to see, are people going to say, we have different emotions here, or these emotions don't translate, you know, like mm -hmm. the, these this book is okay, except you left out this and we don't even know what you're talking about with jealousy and envy or something along right. those lines. But people haven't. I was really surprised with the Chinese version that they were able to find words that, you know, words and concepts that, that translated into mm -hmm. Chinese uh, culture. So um, I wonder, no, I don't wonder. Emotions are our native language. Right. And when people don't share a language, they can emote at each other. Mm -hmm. You know, they can go, I don't know. You know, they can, <laughs> they can gesture and emote at each other yeah. and make sense. Um, and it's I think you can do that across cultures. Children yeah, in the part... sandbox. It's how the children yes, in the children sandbox communicate, sand... you know. Yeah, yeah. See this? Yeah. yeah. One language that I did have an easier time learning was American Sign Language. Because mm -hmm. it's gestural and it's right. a very emotive language. You can swear really beautifully in American sign Damn, I want to learn it now. <laughs> and each country has their own language, their own yeah. sign language, which was yes. which is sad. I think there should be an, an Esperanto sign language. Yeah, so that I think yeah. so too, but again, for some reason no one created it. Yeah. Yeah, it would be great to have that. But I think. I think emotions, anything that connects us through emotion, like drama, art, music, mm -hmm. literature, uh, dance, uh, helps us understand that we are that we are one species, and that right. we are not as separate as our borders and languages have, you know, made mm -hmm. us think that we are. Um, but that each brings such such um, beauty and. Um, and difference to it. I love hearing about different words in different languages for emotions that maybe you don't 
that we don't have in English or you don't have in mm -hmm. your language. Like um, I was talking about German because they can put words together. Yes. They don't have to call them portmanteaus. They're, no, it's, it's how the language feature. works. Feature. It's a yes. feature of German. So um, I love uh, Schadenfreude, mm -hmm. which is which is an emotion that you don't really have in other languages. Actually, yeah. I mean, in English, you have to have this long sentence. It's like the joy you feel when someone else has something bad happen to them. Yeah. Can, can you like, say it short, more short, shortly in, in a short? I call it way? savage glee about the misfortune Savage of another. Glee. Okay. <laughs> Savage glee. And so it's got like this rage and this extreme happiness about someone falling. We have a similar word in English called gloating. Oh. So right. you you win and then you gloat and you mm -hmm. shame the other person for being the loser. So it's not exactly like Schadenfreude. But that would but... be within a game or some with some competition. Yes. Well, Schadenfreude, it could be like you hear about someone having something happen to them and you're not even part of the whole yeah, thing, but you you're still happy. Yeah, you're just, <laughs> yeah, it's like, um, especially when someone high has been brought low. Yes. Like you don't usually have Schadenfreude about a child falling down. No, it would that, have to be someone. Be yeah, about like a very, a very wealthy man falling off his yacht. You'd be like, yes. Something like that. <laughs> or someone you're jealous of, you know, with, yes. or, with or without reason. Yes, yes. So I love hearing about, about emotions from other languages. And um, there is a lot of research saying that the more articulate and granular your emotional vocabulary is, just by developing more vocabulary, you become better at regulating emotion because yes. now you know it's an emotion. It's mm -hmm. not just sort of like, am I having a heart attack? No, it's panic, anxiety, and fear and some shame. Yes. It's not my heart, you know, so you can actually, and I love developing more and more and more um, um, emotion vocabulary from different languages. Does French have anything really cool? For emotion words. For emotions, uh, no. Most of the really cool thing we have are like intellectual stuff. Like one very favorite is l'esprit de l'escalier. It's like the spirit of the staircase. It's uh -huh. when you have been in a meeting or you've been somewhere, you've spoken to people, as the the conversation has gone a bit heated, or you have had like a spirited debate or a situation where you just you would have had to come out as as clever, but nothing came out. And it's afterwards when you're in the staircase going away that you're like, oh, I should have said that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, it's not an emotion. I mean, I, I'm afraid that the French are not very good at emotions. I was having that discussion with my sister um, because she's a, she's a school teacher and she still lives in France. And yeah, she was saying that the, the French are just, for her, notoriously bad at uh, at knowing their emotion they just rant a lot and they get angry very easily and they think that things are intolerable uh, but that's it which is <laughs> sad it's sad i mean i started the whole personal growth work and, and the work on emotions a long time after i had moved away from france and a long time after i had also started to work with english mostly and that's mm -hmm. why for me I, I know all of this in english i can very easily label my emotions in english and if I wanted to speak about my emotions in French, I kind of have to like force translate, which yes. is weird because it's my native language. Yes. But because I have practiced this in another language, I, I 
have a hard time translating. Another topic uh, like that is um, gender and feminism, because it's a topic that is much more better developed in the English uh, cultural realm than in France. Yeah. And very often we just don't have words. Like I I'm gender fluid and it's one of the words I cannot say in my native language. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. The only way I can say it is like une personne de genre fluide, but that's a lot of words. <laughs> and um, yeah, and if I say that to people, they don't understand. Not that they, not that most people understand gender fluid in English either, but at least the word exists. Yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking so much about gender. You know, when we were talking early on about the, the emotions that men are not supposed to have and the emotions that women are not supposed yes. to have, we've got that, that violence of the gender binary. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking of people who are fluid, people who are between these categories. I think, I think that they would have to pay attention to the rules of both. And also, yes. what I notice is that anybody who's not a part of a binary, who's like, nope, that doesn't work for me, has to do a lot of emotional work yes. to almost settle people, almost help people settle down in their emotions about you're breaking a rule, you are, you are yeah. out of, you're out of the category, and I don't know what to do with you. And yeah, I'm thinking about that a lot is, you know, we know what happens to men and women. I'm looking at people in the middle. What is happening to them in terms of the emotions they can and cannot have? Well, I mean, they're not supposed to exist in the first place. Yeah. So having emotions on top of existing and you're asking for a bit too much. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry to be so blunt and cynical about it, but it's unfortunately like it's... the situation that we are in. Yes. Um, and for me, it, well, also because my whole personal growth journey also happened because I started to deal with gender and I got fired yes. twice. And then I decided to create a business instead yes. of trying to stick to like the employment thing because it didn't work for me. Yes. And so all of that was part of the same journey for me. Uh, now the point that I'm at is that I don't care. Uh, it's not my problem what other people feel. Of yeah. course, if I'm in a situation where it's a friend or it's a client and I have a vested interest in managing this person's emotions, I'm not, gonna to, I'm not going to purposely, uh, well, I'm never actually going to purposely uh, shock someone yes. because I don't like doing that. Um, yes. But it took me years to reach a point where I'm like, okay, like their problem, not mine. Yes. But also there's a lot of privilege involved because I own my own business. I make my own living. I don't need to cater to a boss. I don't need to find a job. I don't need to, you know, and I wasn't always in this position and not all people who are either transgender or, or non-binary are in that situation. Yes. So I'm, I'm well aware that my position is great. Uh, it did not just happen. I built it. But yeah, I'm not an example of how it is for everyone in, in outside of the gender binary. Yes. Yes. I'm working with them. Um, I live in Sonoma County, California, which is a fairly expensive place to live, well, mm -hmm. California is. And the, the, the rule is once rents get above one third of a person's income, homelessness will explode. And, mm -hmm. but what we also see out there, so I work out doing outreach and just bringing things to people and seeing what they need and I see a lot of gender fluid people. Who oh, that's are interesting. Probably because of streets. California. 
Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, yes. it's known to be the Many best place in the world. Many are sent away from their homes mm-hmm. uh, here. It's, it's, and um, I've just been just really feeling into it and, and just trying to figure out what, what is my, as a person with privilege who's driving around supporting people, right. what is my approach? What is there something I can do? One of the problems I've been seeing is I have clothing that is separated into men's and women's clothing because mm-hmm. of the sizing. And so I go up to someone and I'm like, here's the men's clothing. And I'm like, oops, I'm just, (laughs) darn it. It's like, you know, the whole structure of it is that there's men's clothing and women's clothing. There's no middle What changing rooms? Yeah. (laughs) Can you imagine the issue with changing rooms? Yes. I recently started to go to the swimming pool again, because after five years, I found a way to have a sort of swimsuit that is gender neutral. It might be the only one in the world. Okay. (laughs) So, yeah yeah it's everywhere it's everywhere you, you could organize your clothing by size not by men and women yes also because there is actually a lot more size difference like in you know physically there is a lot more size difference within women as a range and within men than between the average man and the average woman so it's actually when you think about it it's a bit absurd to have it separated in those two categories. It, it's, a, it's a complete social construct that is not actually reflected in the physics of the thing that you're thinking about. Oh, now I'm gonna redo the whole storage unit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but well, then you so- need to make sure, you need to make sure that you're using the same size chart because an issue is that there's also male size chart and female size chart and it's different from country to country. It's the different hustle. from- for me, because yeah. I have made male clothing and female clothing. Yeah. And it's, it's a nightmare to deal with those charts. Like I never know what I'm looking at. It's a nightmare. If from, from clothing maker to clothing maker, it's different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. It's a good idea. <laughs> Happy to help <laughs> if that helps. <laughs> I'm afraid like when I speak about that, I'm afraid I'm going to confuse people even more. Uh, rather than help them but I think if they get confused and they start to think about it it's also a good thing yeah because it makes them question you know the binary world that they have lived in so far which hasn't disturbed them but disturbs other people yes so yes no thank you yeah and thanks for your point about French because none of the books have been translated into French and I keep wondering why and it's probably because the they might not the French publishers are like what is this it's not even a thing emotions who cares it it, it could be unfortunately but it's hard there's so many canadians who want to read this in french Mm -hmm. yeah i would love to translate it but i I cannot possibly find the time like it's what like 600 pages (laughs) plus it's already it's already kind of a tough read because it's so meaty and intense I cannot imagine the work it is to translate that. Yeah, it's big. It's yeah. big. Yeah. yeah. All right. There's one question that I love to ask at the end of, uh, of each interview, uh, unless it comes up earlier. Is, do you think things are getting better with you know, cultural transcommunication, but also uh, emotional communication, relationship between people? Is, is it improving? 
could we ask this when the pandemic is over? Because right now it looks pretty bad to me. Can we come uh, back? That's an if... answer. <laughs> we can make another episode in like, I don't know, one or two years. You probably have another couple of books out. Sure. We I've can. just been, I've been so concerned about humans over these past five or six years. Just so concerned. Me too, to be honest. Yeah. I um I was like, are we going to be able to pull this out of the fire? I do not know. I really don't. Yeah. Well, I guess that's uh, kind of the last answer to the, well, I have another question, like one very last question. Okay. Well, <laughs> I would have loved to like finish on a more gleeful note, but hey, <laughs> we're almost out of time. So we're going to have to wrap this up, but it, it was amazing talking to you. Where can people find you? Uh, CarlaMcLaren.com and uh, you can take courses at EmpathyAcademy.org. Right. Perfect. Amazing. So if you aren't familiar with Carla's work, I'm serious, you need to dive into it. And I don't use the word need lightly, but like, it is absolutely life-changing. It changed my life. It changed so many other people's lives. So I'll put all the links in the show notes so you can find Carla's work. And yeah, thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on the podcast platform that you use or a comment if you're on YouTube. That would mean the world to me and it would really help other people find the podcast and also convince other amazing guests like Carla to join with us. So thank you so much, Carla, for being here with us. And yeah, I look forward to what you will do in the near future. <laughs> thank you so much. All right. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episodes.